This is a year-long commitment and a year-long project taking place on and around the campus of the University of Maryland in College Park. And we are very thrilled to be able to bring one of our panel discussions here to the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore. I especially want to thank the Maryland Humanities Council for their support in making this opportunity available to all of you and for helping with the support of our project um, and especially the free community events that we have scheduled as part of this project. Um, and uh, we're also funded and supported by the National Endowment for the Arts um, and the Prince George's Arts Council as well. So I would really love to uh, welcome our panel of um, uh, experts tonight for an, an involved conversation. We will leave room at the end for plenty of questions. So please let me introduce to you Kojo Namdi and our uh, panel of discussants. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As Paul said, my name is Kojo Namdi, and I am your alleged moderator for the evening. <laughs> I say alleged because we will see how it ultimately turns out. But thank you all for being here, and tonight, welcome to the continuum from Fortune to Henrietta Lacks and beyond. You will begin by hearing a little of the story of Fortune's Bones and a little of the story of Henrietta Lacks, and then our panel of discussants will provide various insights into both those stories and what they imply both for the present and for the future. Allow me to introduce each of our panelists. You do have programs, but for those of you who may not have programs, I'll just tell you a little bit about them. First, please welcome Issei Barnwell. Issei Barnwell is a member of the African American female a cappella ensemble Sweet Honey in the Rock. For some reason, they never let me sing with them. She, she is a commissioned composer, arranger, author, and actress. She is a vocalist with a range of over three octaves and appears on more than 25 recordings with Sweet Honey as well as other artists. Trained as a violinist for 15 years, beginning at the age of two and a half, she holds degrees in speech, speech pathology, craniofacial studies, and public health. And it all comes together for Fortune's Bones. You'll find out about that later. Also, please welcome Tanya Lavelle Banks. Tanya Lavelle Banks is the Jacob A. France Professor of Equality Jurisprudence at the University of Maryland School of Law, where she teaches constitutional law, torts, and seminars on law and popular culture, film or literature, citizenship, and critical race theory. Prior to entering legal education in 1976, Tanya Lavelle Banks worked as a civil rights lawyer in Mississippi, litigating voting rights and housing discrimination cases, and providing technical assistance to black elected officials. Please now welcome Kurt Sivan. <laughs> Kurt Sivan is a medical doctor who serves as associate dean for research and the director of the Center for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine and professor of pediatrics and physiology 
of the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Prior to this, he spent a highly successful 30-year tenure at Johns Hopkins Medical School, primarily focused on pediatrics and oncology as endowed professor and leader. And now, well, Henrietta's son. <laughs> David Sonny Lex has enthralled university and library audiences across the country talking about his mother, Henrietta Lex, and her important contribution to science. The international success of Rebecca Skloot's New York Times bestseller, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lex, has left people keenly interested in the Lex family and in Henrietta's legacy. So now you've met all of our panelists. Allow me to start by having you hear a little bit of the stories. First, Ise Barnwell, who is Fortune, and why are his bones important? Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening to you. How are you, and thank you so much. This is a wonderful vision from the front of the room to just see how full this room is and how interested people are in this subject. Fortune. Fortune was an enslaved African, we believe, who with his wife and four children were owned by a physician named Preservit Porter in Waterbury, Connecticut. Fortune died in 1798. When he died, the physician, Dr. Porter, I think saw an opportunity to understand more about the body, about medicine, saw an opportunity to share his experience with others, and so he dissected Fortune's body, boiled the tissue, the, the remaining soft tissue from the bones, and kept the bones so that he could continue to share his experiences with others. The bones of Fortune remained in the Porter family from 1798 until 1930, when they were given to the Mattatock Museum. At that point, the Mattatock Museum had the, the bones fully articulated, meaning hung together in a way that they could be hung uh, as we normally see a skeleton when we see it, whether in a cartoon or in a movie or whatever. And that skeleton hung in the museum, the Waterbury Mattatock Museum, until about 1970. There was a committee in Waterbury of African Americans who began to look at their oral history. They began by interviewing everyone who was 80 years old and older. And when they had come kind of to a completion of that project, they asked that someone write a play that incorporated those stories. That's important because that same committee began to look at fortune and assisted in some ways and participated in looking at fortune's history and his story with the staff of the museum and with other researchers who came at that point to begin to look at Fortune's bones to see what it was those bones could tell us about the kind of work he did, what he might have eaten, the kinds of stresses and injuries that he had, etc. 
that committee decided that Fortune's story, if it was going to be told in a broader community, needed to be put in a form of art as well. And so they commissioned Marilyn Nelson, who at the time was the poet laureate of the state of Connecticut. They commissioned her to write Fortune's story as a poem. This is the resulting book that has the poem and much of the history that, the, that has been gathered about Fortune and Waterbury. Several years after Marilyn completed the poem, I was asked by the Waterbury Symphony if I would set that poem to music, which I did for full orchestra. When it's performed in Washington, D.C. at the end of the month, there will be 200 singers on stage and eight soloists. Um, but their hope, I think, is actually coming true that Fortune's story is being told to broader and broader audiences. The University of Maryland heard about um, the piece and began talking to me about it. And as we talked, I think they understood that the issues of Fortune's life and death and the after were so unusual and interesting that perhaps it would be a very, very good cross-campus, cross-community kind of project. And so we've been working on this for some time, and the public discussions began in September. Um, this is the first discussion that we've had that looks at fortune and the continuum from fortune to Henrietta Lacks. Um, other panels have looked at who speaks for fortune, uh, who was fortune. We'll be talking about slavery and the University of Maryland, but this is going to look at that relationship. I would like to read Marilyn's poem that is really the voice of the doctor, because I feel like there's a perspective here that's very interesting. Um, this will be sung, but not tonight. <laughs> and when I've done, then perhaps we can move on to uh, the next panelist. This is called On a Brigador Hill. And again, it's in the voice of the doctor. He says, for 50 years, my feeling hands have practiced the bone setter's healing touch, a gift inherited by porter men. I have manipulated joints, cracked nets, and set my neighbors back to work. I've bled and purged fever and flux, inoculated for smallpox, prescribed fresh air and vegetables, cod liver oil and laudanum, and closed the lightless eyes of the new dead. And I've been humbled by ignorance. Humbled by ignorance. Herewith begins my dissection of the former body of my former slave, which served him, who served me throughout his life, and now serves the advance of science. Note well how death softens the human skin, making it almost transparent, so that under my reverent knife, the first cut takes my breath away. It feels like cutting the whole world it falls open like gossamer, and I am humbled by ignorance. Humbled 
by ignorance. Standing on a new continent beyond the boundaries of nakedness, I am forever changed by what I see. The complex, delicate organs fitted perfectly in their shelter of bones, the striated and smooth muscles, the beautiful integuments, the genius strokes of thumb and knee. In profound and awful intimacy, I enter fortune, and fortune enters me. I am humbled by ignorance. Humbled by ignorance. Issei Barnwell. It is important to note that anthropologists and scientists have been studying Fortune's bones, trying to find out more about Mr. Fortune's life, and I guess still hoping ultimately to be able to trace Mr. Fortune's DNA because he may have descendants sitting in this room today, and the debate continues in Waterbury, Connecticut over what should ultimately happen to the bones of Mr. Fortune. But as we make the connection between the story of Fortune's Bones and the story of Henrietta Lacks, I now call on Sonny Lacks. For those people who are unfamiliar with the story or who have not read the book, please tell us a little bit about what happened to your mother. Well, my name is David Sonny Lacks, and I'm glad and honored to be uh, amongst this audience. Thank you very much. Well, only thing I can tell you what happened with my mother is that John Hopkins, back in 51, took her cells without her knowledge or her family's knowledge. And from that, it came a revolution of medical science uh, inventing or coming up with like the polio vaccine and other things that they did with their cells. It, for the family, it made the family feel proud and good about this. It was a, uh, I guess you could say, a journey that my sister, Deborah Lacks, who one that started that, to find out who her mother was and who her cells was. Because in the beginning, they tried to say the cells was Helen Lane, Helen Larsley, but my sister Deborah wanted to get out. It was Henrietta Lacks, her mother's cells. And from that, that's when her and Rebecca Snoop got together, and I mean, they did a lot of research. Uh, they went all over doing stuff. And as far as the family's concerned, it made the family proud to have my sister do all this research. Now we've been doing like engagements like this, and it feels so good that people want to know about the story about Henrietta Lacks. I have, just like they say, I, just today, I just met some members of my family that I didn't know was existing from Turner Station. They was right here. They came to me, told me who they was from Turner Station and from Clover, Virginia. I'm glad to know them. And so far, my family and people around me are being very supportive of the brothers that are left. I have my family members in the back, my wife, my daughter, my grandbabies. And it's a story that they're learning now, too. They're learning from the generation to generation, which is good. 
and I'm pleased. I appreciate y'all having me here today. Thank y'all very much. How? How old were you when your mother died? I was four years old when my mother died. How did your family find out about what happened to your mother? Okay, it was by accident. My brother, my older brother, Lawrence Lax, Bobette Lax was at a dinner engagement with some friends that worked at a hospital that worked in the lab. And they told her that, your name is Lax. We're working on some um, cells from Henrietta Lax. And she couldn't even eat dinner. She jumped up from the table and ran home and told her husband about it. And from then, we learned about their doing study about Henrietta Lacks by accident. How did your family respond? What does it feel like to find out that your mother made such a historic contribution to science? Well, I can say for myself, it felt good. It felt good, and the rest of my family felt good and proud about it. It's good to know a young lady like Henrietta Lacks and her prime gave something to the world and so much cure or create things came from it. And it, it was a, a crusade that Deborah Lacks was doing for to try to find out who Henrietta Lacks was and what she contributed to the world. Kurt Seven, could you tell us from a technical standpoint, if you will, what is unique about the cells of Henrietta Lacks, about HeLa cells? Why were they and why are they? Why do they continue to be so important? Thank you, Kojo. The interesting thing about Henrietta's cells is that they were the first. It was the very first cell line. And I remember hearing about these cells in medical school in the early 70s. We were told that they came from a woman named Helen Lane. And then there were whispers that that wasn't her real name, but we had no idea what her real name was. Even then, that was what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to protect the patients and the family's identity. And in fact, now we work very hard to make it impossible to do the tracing that Deborah did. But the power of these cells was that suddenly scientists could grow cancers in their laboratories and find out the metabolism of cancers, human cancer cells. Prior to this, we could study bacteria, we could study yeast, we could on a limited basis study animals' cancers. There weren't very many of them. But now in the test tube, we could study the biochemistry, the DNA, the other molecules of cancers, and figure out, potentially, what made them grow wrong. So I think it's clear from the motivation of the poet, the doctor's motivation and the poet's motivation, and as David said, the doctor's motivation and the family's reward that the knowledge that has come of this has probably affected and helped every person in this room. Tanya Lavelle Banks, I guess what these two short stories share in common is that neither Mr. Fortune nor Henrietta Lacks gave permission 
to anyone to do anything with them. How does that affect what we now view today as informed consent? Well, I mean, that's a very difficult question because the notion of informed consent um, is informed by many disciplines, not just law, um, but moral philosophy, uh, social behavioral science. Um, but in law, uh, normally the focus is on uh, informed consent in a doctor-patient setting, not in a clinical research setting. Uh, the federal government has, has more recently um, enacted guidelines providing for informed consent for research participants. But, but, but they gain no ownership in uh, the, the, their body, bodily materials that, that they uh, donate. Uh, in fact, they're considered gifts. Uh, and whereas they can stop participating in a research uh, trial, uh, the, the materials that they have donated uh, remain with the, the institution or the researcher. Um, and, 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 and I think this is, is very difficult for many people to accept and understand. There have been a couple of cases where um, actually even researchers who are leaving the institution where the, the, the uh, research material is located and the participants themselves have wanted to get their material back and the courts have, uh, the lower courts, the Supreme Court has refused to, to um, decide this case, um, have refused to get involved. But on the other side, uh, when you're talking about a clinical setting, there's a, uh, a very strong belief in uh, autonomy and patient autonomy and uh, a patient-focused uh, uh, decision-making uh, when you're talking about what you're doing with your body. Uh, and there the law is, is, is very clear, and, and it stems in part uh, back to um, the horror of the world uh, upon learning about the atrocious um, experiments performed by uh, Nazi doctors during World War II. Um, and, and, and it also sort of stems from this notion that doctors don't always know what's in the best interest of their patient. Um, and that um, only by acting together with doctor and, and patient uh, can um, um, good decisions about medical procedures be made. Before I go back to Issei Barnwell, allow me to ask you, David Lacks. On the one hand, you, your family, and a whole lot of other people are very proud about what your mother's cells have been able to do for scientific research. It has been able to help scientific research on everything from polio to cervical cancer, etc. On the other hand, there has been a commercial, commercial usage of this research in products that have made a lot of people a great deal of money. Was there any resentment on the part of the members of your family when you discovered that you had no standing legally to make any claims for any of the money that these products made? Well, some of the family members resented that they commercialized herself and made millions and billions of dollars off of it. But the majority of the family, the immediate family, we found out that she was a given person and a proud person. So we feel as though she, if she was living today or knew what they was going to do with her cells back then, she would have gave anyway. Because from what I understand, 
the older people that I have talked to in the past that remember my mother, and I was surprised that they could remember back then because I can't remember what I did yesterday sometimes. <laughs> so they really made me feel good about that. They all explained to me that she was a giving person. So Deborah was a person that gave to, and she was proud to find out that her mother, Cells, was doing all this for the world. Not just for a few, but for the world. And we feel proud about this. Yes, uh, a lot of us, even me, you know, I would love to have a pocket full of money sitting on the beach, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it was the idea that her cells did so much for the world. And that's what we're proud about. And Issei Barnwell and Kurt Sivan and Tanya Lavelle Banks, I'll start with you, Issei. This is a little bit of the ethical dilemma in which we find ourselves today because I mentioned earlier that all of this comes together for you because of your own background in craniofacial studies and in science, but even today, the tissues that were used from Henrietta Lacks were cancerous tissues that were taken from her, and in today's law, there is still no recourse. And that is, it is my understanding, and that's why I called on all three of you to help clarify this issue, it's my understanding that that is considered a kind of surgical waste matter, and that that waste matter belongs to whoever disposes of it, so to speak. Is that correct? Um, I'm perfectly willing to let anybody else respond to this. That's my understanding as well, that when we give informed consent, uh, it is generally for procedures and things, tests that are going to be done, et cetera, but it really doesn't usually pertain to the remnants of that exam, the waste matter of that exam. And so if someone collects that waste matter and decides that they can utilize it for another purpose and do, and if they make money off of it, it was waste matter. And if other people have another read on that, please um, help me to clarify. But we no longer own it. We've given it away. We've consented to the procedure that took place. So, Tanya Lavelle Banks. Sure. It's it's almost like that, but there's a little bit more, and that is that. Whoever seeks to use waste material, even though it's waste material, um, must have permission of a large committee of people composed mostly of doctors, but also of some lay people who look at that request and that research and okay it. Yeah, these are called IRBs, affectionately. And they debate long and hard over whether this, is, this research proposed is good for humanity, has any dangers to the patient or the, the former patient um, who donated the uh, material. If it's waste material, generally today, there would have to be a very, very strong reason to keep any record of the identity of the patient. So we call these samples de-identified samples. It would be very hard, perhaps impossible, to figure out whose cells um, the HeLa cells came from. 
um, if they were made today for the purposes, for making a cell line for the purposes today. It would have to go through an IRB and be approved. But this would be a standard thing. If somebody said, I wanted to make cell lines from cervical carcinomas, so from tissue that was waste material from cervical carcinomas, and I want to make, say, a better vaccine for cervical cancer. We have a vaccine for HPV, which is a very good cervical cancer vaccine today, thanks in part to HeLa cells and Henrietta. These, but if somebody had a project to stay, study those cells and make a better vaccine, they would apply to an IRB and might gain permission to do that, obtaining the cells in a de-identified fashion. Maybe I should stop there. Tanya Lavelle And let me just emphasize that this is a policy decision. This, I mean, this does not, you know, the law can change, but this is a policy decision. It's made for a variety of reasons. Some of them uh, are, are, are designed not to stigmatize people who may have donated cells. Uh, some of it is, is designed to, um, to encourage uh, researchers to, to use the material without fear that uh, the material, uh, the donors will come after them to try and get money. And, and, and it's, it's um, uh, you know, I, I must admit, you know, after reading uh, uh, about David's mother uh, and these wonderful cells, I am, I am personally very torn. Um, um, and it makes you wonder whether there's some middle ground when you have, you know, in, in situations where there are extraordinary, you know, supercells, um, um, whether something else should be done. But at, at, at this point, there's nothing. I mean, and, and it wasn't until recently, fairly recently, that, re that if, you if you chose to participate in a research survey, and, and I think that, that uh, Henrietta Lacks was in, um, wasn't she in some experimental? No. She wasn't. Okay. No, she was okay. not. All right. No, no. You can see I haven't read the book. Every, uh, <laughs> seems like everybody else but, here has. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but had she been a research subject, they, could, they would have told her about the procedures, about the risk, but uh, any material, any cells that they had gotten from her, even under today's more stringent law, would not uh, belong to where there would be no, um, no uh, interest that the family would retain in those cells. I have a question to ask. Um, when I question about her cells, they tell me that her cells, even her picture they post around, is public domain. Is that means as waste material, public domain, they can do anything they want to do with it, and they can make profit out of it even today? Like, they say we can't do nothing, but they still commercialize it today, and they still use themselves today, and we still can they say we still can't do anything about it. What the word public domain means, waste material, when they say that to us. The attorney. Um, I mean, you know, I, I really must admit that the, that the notion of public domain um, is, I, I find, sort of interesting. There's no ownership. I mean, the, there was, the family has no ownership in her cells. Um, you know, today they would have no ownership. They had no ownership then. Um, and she would have no ownership were she alive in those cells because they're either waste material which 
which the informed consent form that she may have signed, you know, today would have have um, have made made clear, uh, or um, it's it, it's viewed as having donated her cells for science, um, and in that sense, um, it it's for the public good. I'm not sure if it's public domain, but it's certainly the public good. And Isib, oh, go ahead, Dr. Sibyl. Um, we all shook our head and said no. The uh, no research was being conducted, but. I was thinking more about that and thinking about the standards of the time. At the time, the doctor whose name I've forgotten, who was Dr. Guy, was, was, was trying to make cell lines. And he was trying and trying to make cell lines. And you remember the story. He failed. And then he happened upon Henrietta's cell line. So he certainly was doing research. It's just that at that time, there was no standard of informed consent. So we assumed there was, there might or might not have been a conversation. Nobody remembers a conversation about the, uh, the use of the cells. Probably wasn't a conversation, right. Um, I mean, I, I, they, they, I mean, given what was happening elsewhere in the medical field, and the kinds of experiments that were going on, um, there, there, there probably were not. I mean, I, I, ran, I ran across a line from um, the Greek uh, philosopher Plato, his, uh, one of his dialogues about laws. And he was talking about informed consent. And actually, it's sort of amazing that uh, he was talking about at least a, a modified form of informed consent in ancient Greece. But not everybody had that right. The only people who had a right to be informed by their doctor of the treatment and of the nature of the illness were the citizens of Greece. Uh, the non-citizens of Greece, including the slaves, one, were not treated by doctors. They were treated by people we would today call paramedics. And uh, the notion was they should be happy that they have any treatment at all. Issei Barnwell, I'd like to take a look at this from both a scientific perspective, but also from an artistic perspective, and that is the connection between these two stories is one that in both cases there have been significant contributions to scientific research. On the other hand, there is this uneasy sense of unfairness, uneasy sense of injustice that I guess is clearer maybe in the case of fortune Mr. Fortune than it is in the case of Henrietta Lacks. But from the very beginning, these two stories have come together in your own mind. Why? Well, yes, there is an inherent sense of injustice and, and unfairness. Um, and there is the question of ownership, which enters both. Um, did Henrietta have a right to own her own cells and to determine how they should be used? The real answer is no. It should have been yes, but in reality, she had no say. Fortune died, and his bones were used. Her, his bones were kept. His body was used. Did he have a say? No. He should have had a say. Some of us want to donate our body, bodies to science. I doubt that his wife donated his body to science. And so that's kind of what underlies this whole thing. It's what makes us feel uneasy because 
these individuals did not own themselves or parts of themselves. And I think that we, you know, we have to just look at that. Now, it's fine to look and say, but look what we've learned from all of this, because we have, we've learned so much. And I think you are right to say that everybody in this room has probably benefited from the research that was done on Fortune's body and on Henrietta Lacks' cells. Um, but then you have to weigh, does that good for the broader humanity um, compensate for the lack of consideration for the individual? I, you know, I think we have to say yes, that it, the broader good um, persists and pertains, but the damage done to the individual is in many ways unforgivable. Okay. But isn't, I mean, it's, it's, it goes to dignity. I mean, no one's mentioned the word dignity. Um, you just did. Well, I mean, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is why I did. I mean, with, with Fortune, I mean, it's an indignity that's done to his body. We, sit, we, we in law even consider bodies and the handling of bodies to be special and sacred and will will allow people to sue if the body has been mishandled. Certainly, Fortune's body was mishandled. His, his, he was denied the dignity of, bury, of a burial. His family was denied... Um, the dignity of, 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 of being able to have a place where they could, could go and uh, pay homage to uh, their uh, husband and, and parent. And, and for Henrietta Lacks, um, and for all people who donate what is called waste material, and I mean, and, and, and even the term itself is, is a rather a, a term that tends to well, deny... Well, I, I get the impression that the words donate and waste material cannot be used in the same sentence. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, but, 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 in, but the law would say you donate. The medical science would say, well, this is really waste material, okay? But, but the courts who have looked at these kinds of things talk about this as, 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 as donations. If you're living, there are living donations. If you aren't living, they are other kinds of donations. Um, and, and it's sort of part of what you agree to in, in informed consent. And it, and it may not be as spelled out, uh, unless you're in a place like California. So I remember I read a very... Um, detailed um, consent form ones that did actually say that they would keep all my uh, things that they took out of me that they didn't use. Um, so, <laughs> But still you have no control over it. I guess what I'm trying to get to is how do we move forward as a culture in the future? And that is we do have review boards today. There seems to be little disagreement over the fact that this kind of research needs to go forward and continue. But the ethical context in which that research goes forward seems to remain pretty murky and pretty cloudy. Or am I missing something here, Dr. Sivan? Well, I might say that neither Fortune nor Henrietta Lacks's waste material, if we'll call that that now, could be used the way it was used then Today. without somebody's consent. First an IRB approval and then the patient's consent. Every medical student has looked at bones, 
has held bones, has studied them, they had to come from somebody. Hopefully nowadays, when bones are obtained, they're obtained with consent. Although I'm not very sure about that. <laughs> Certainly when cells are obtained in a hospital, they must be obtained with consent. Where do we draw these lines? Is it when the patient is still alive or afterwards? A lot of times it's afterwards. Can you tell us a little bit about whether there are memorials or events that are being planned to honor your mother's memory? Uh, yes, there's a, quite a few. Morehouse College has Henrietta Lacks Day in Morehouse College. Um, John Hawkins gives a microscopic day where you can come down in, view her cells. Courtney Speed of Turner Station is trying to open the museum. She's a real advocate for Henrietta Lacks. She had her house where she lived at, uh, made a uh, historical site, and she's still trying to get her museum built in Turner Station. I mean, there's a lot of things going on now. They have made a roadmark sticker or roadmark in Virginia with, of Henrietta Lacks. They have a statue of Henrietta Lacks in John Hopkins Hospital now. University of Maryland did a um, very good engagement of last year of Henrietta Lacks. They're doing a lot of things now, you know, and and they, they I guess they kind of stepping up to the plate to kind of make it seems that they're doing a little something for the Lacks family, and which we appreciate very much. But the best thing we can get out like now is, like I say, is what Deborah Lacks wanted is to know that everyone know who the heel cells belongs to. My brother Lawrence Lacks, he started a um, uh, Henrietta Lacks Foundation for Cancer Research. It's uh, quite a few things. Rebecca Sloop has a research for the Lacks family, a foundation for the Lacks family to apply to go to colleges and other things she done. And they have did a few things for us, but they have been stepping up to the plate now. So we are kind of pleased. At least I am, anyway. Issa Barnwell. We've heard about the legal and scientific aspects of this. How about the artistic aspect of this? You have been involved with the Fortunes Bones project for years now. All of the things we discussed here, all of the scientific aspects, all of the uncertainty, all of the injustice, all of the hopes, all of the dreams, somehow still have to be captured in an artistic work. What is the challenge like of putting such a work together based on a manumission requiem that already exists, written by Marilyn Nelson. Yeah, I, I think that um, the charge to an artist is to somehow, um, in this instance, become the voice of the person who did not have their own voice. And I think that Marilyn Nelson did an amazing job of giving voice not only to Fortune, but to the doctor and to Fortune's wife. Um, Marilyn created an image for me that I can't let go of, and that was the image of Dinah, Fortune's wife, dusting her husband. She remained in servitude with her children in that home 
after these procedures were done to Fortune. And I would never have gone there, I don't think, on my own. I don't know whether I could have allowed myself to go there. So the image that this artist, as a poet, created will reside with me forever. Um, I think that part of the commitment of the artist is to, is to be a voice. And so Marilyn has created a, a written voice. And what I've tried to create is a musical voice so that people hear this in a broader context. Um, and hopefully um, the book, the musical work, will circulate broadly and widely and people will discuss this enough so that maybe one day someone will come and say, there's a fortune in my family. I heard my great, 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 great grandmama talking about it to somebody else who passed it down, 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 down. I think I'm related. I don't know quite how else we will find fortune's descendants because we're talking over 200 years. And even if we have DNA, a whole lot of us have to be in a DNA pool to try to come up with current residents uh, on the planet who might actually have a direct relationship to him. So I am hoping that the story will be broadly spread so that if there are people for whom that resonates, they will make themselves known. If there are members of the audience who have questions or comments, we have a microphone on this side of the room. I wanted to say one other thing before we go well, to that. Well, yes. Um, we, you brought up the issue of public domain, and it's very interesting because public domain fits really broadly into a musical or an artistic concept. Um, a work of music that is public domain means no one owns it and basically no one can. It's existed from whenever it was created, uh, anonymously created, we think, uh, or it's so old that we can't figure out who created it. So no one really can take credit for the creation of it. You can take credit for manipulating it in some way, of giving it a particular kind of artistic context that that original material set in. And you can get some form of compensation for that new setting of that content, but you can't take ownership of it. Um, my question really has to do with, okay, Henrietta Sells are in the public domain, but has anybody been compensated in any kind of a monetary way? Has the family ever been compensated? Um, and if not, has the family sought compensation? And if you did not get it, what are your feelings about that? David Lex? Uh, no, the family has not been compensated for or have any monetary um, from anyone. Um, like I said, the little things they're doing now, like myself, I don't even have health insurance. You know, and here my mother have contributed this to the world. And then what I asked that question because I was in a barbershop one day and a student was just telling me he's taking biology and he has to pay $169 for my mother's cells when this was given to her. And this was why my question, I didn't like that at all. I was really had attitude about that part. You know, here, her cells out there freely. We're not receiving anything, not saying we want anything, but 
they're selling themselves, you know, even today. And they saying we have no control over anything, but they're still selling themselves today. And that was my question. We haven't received anything. Has the family ever question. made an attempt through the courts by way of lawsuit or anything? Uh, we tried after all this came out, but the um, statement was made that uh, statue, statue of limitations is gone. And my question was, if statute of limitation to the lawyer is gone, how can they still use it and sell it today if we don't have no statute, if we have no say-so? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, actually, I wanted to ask the, 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 uh, the doctor a question, um, since I haven't read the book. Um, is Hopkins, does Hopkins then sell um, uh, the... <laughs> so, so, as explained in the book, and I think I can verify this, the cell line from HeLa Cells, uh, Dr. Guy um, gave to anybody who wanted it. And at a certain point, it was deposited in various um, freezers. And in days of yore, uh, one researcher would call another researcher and say, I heard you have some HeLa cells. I'd like to get some HeLa cells. Would you send them to me? Or would you bring them to me? And Dr. Guy would travel to New York or something with some HeLa cells in his pocket and would pass them on. Uh, now the world is more complicated. It's Federal Express. The cells are for, uh, uh, preserved in the freezer, et cetera. And these things cost some money to do. And so, of course, companies can do it better, right? So the companies now hold these cells. And if I, a researcher, wanted some HeLa cells today, I couldn't call up Dr. Guy, uh, likely to get authentic HeLa cells that were proved to be HeLa cells. Um, I would go to one of these repositories. I guess I would have to pay $169 for their costs, and they would send me the uh, HeLa cells. But I would probably, if I were asking them um, for HeLa cells, I would be planning on doing thousands and thousands of dollars of uh, expensive experiments with them. So I wouldn't consider the $169 more than the Federal Express and the um, charges of getting them. Now, I'm not saying that I would, wouldn't object or wouldn't be happy to pay another $10 to the family or something like that. And, and that might be a solution. As, a, as I said earlier, if you have questions, please try to step up to the microphone here on the right and get in line and please try to keep your questions and comments as brief as possible. We're running I just have a quick question. A and time I, limited I, situation. I did get here late. Is there any precedence for this issue about something that uh, is taken from someone else and you know kind of lives in, in uh, lives on forever? Is there any kind of correlation to any anything anything like this? Any sort of precedence? I didn't realize we in, had a traveling microphone. Um, could you I'm sorry, can you repeat your question? Could you repeat is, your question? Is there any kind, for the discussion about how to handle this, isn't there any kind of precedence for anything like this? There's no precedence or any kind of, not necessarily with cells, but for anything else. There must be some sort of analogy to something else. There are analogies to, to um, 
every aspect of this. And I think that's why uh, it's important that we have this discussion. Um, Henrietta cells, if I'm correct, were the only cells of their type. So there is no precedence um, for that. Uh, the discovery of her cells and the way in which they have been utilized and shared and profited from, that, that's a classic example in itself. Now, there may, in fact, be other instances that are similar to that. Um, in the case of studying medicine, everybody has to study anatomy. I confess that when I did my doctoral dissertation, it was an anatomical dissection study. Um, I taught in the, the, the dental school at Howard and watched students involved in dissection very often. It is essential, uh, but how we approach it is very interesting. And I heard, uh, saw a TV program, maybe some of you saw it, just this week, where it opened where students were being told to be reverent and respectful of the cadaver that they had worked on. Anybody see that? And when the student, this one student unzipped the case for her cadaver, she discovered that wasn't her cadaver. That was the beginning of the show. Anyway, there, is a, there has been a long evolution of developing a respect for cadavers. There are instances where we know that bodies have been discarded under the floorboards of medical schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are many examples of graves being robbed to get specimens, et cetera. Dr. Porter was fortunate in the sense that he had his specimen right there, and he happened to own it. Um, there are numerous, numerous examples of things that have happened in medical science that we are still looking at and dealing with. The classic one is the Tuskegee experiment, where 600 people, men, women, and children, were given syphilis so that we could, we in the medical field could study the course of the disease untreated. And there are still uh, subjects from that experiment who are still alive. They happen to all be in facilities for the mentally ill because they all have tertiary syphilis. We understand now that that same experiment was replicated in Guatemala. We have numerous things. So we're not going to recount all of those. We just need to understand this is not the only situation either for Fortune or for Henrietta, that in between and probably continuing on, there will be other instances. How do we deal with that? We learn, and, and you all are very, very fortunate in this community because you have the mini-med school. You can go and learn how to give informed consent, understand what form, informed consent actually is, uh, learn the difference between treatment and experimentation, etc. Those things are very important to understand. And so that is, I think, the reason why this conversation is a very important and valuable conversation. Yes, ma'am. Uh, um, oh, wait a second. We have another voice. And I just want to add this. In today's world, you have a right to ask and get an answer from your physician about any question that you have, and if your physician doesn't give you, doesn't treat you um, as, you know, as, as someone who should be listened to, then you probably need to go someplace else. Um, just speaking, one, as a physician um, who did not know 
I didn't know anything about Henrietta Lacks, even through my medical training. Um, I knew about HeLa cells, um, and, but did not know uh, who they came from. So this has been, um, I found out about her last year. And so it's an, an honor to meet her son, first of all. Thank you so much for, for this. Um, and then secondly, as someone who is also a singer, who will be singing um, uh, Dr. Barnwell's piece, um, I'm so excited to, uh, to participate um, in, this, uh, in this way. One of the things I wanted to bring up is the connection between Fortune and Henrietta um, in another way than maybe we are discussing it right now, um, but it's still there, and so I feel like it maybe should come to the forefront. So it's that the, the other piece is that it's the notion of um, someone's, whatever you want to call it, waste or uh, their, their bones or any part of their humanness um, being used without their awareness and that there is this sense that maybe that that happened because they were not um, in a position to give consent. And um, that certainly, obviously, there have been so many changes over the years so that now that is a known thing that you give informed consent, but it just wasn't there then. And the connection between that and people who are oppressed. And so that the oppressed certainly then, and I'm sure in many places now, tend to be, um, tend to have been, and maybe now still, in, the, in a position where this kind of thing can, can happen more often than the non-oppressed. And um, that some of the, the, um, the, the flavor that kind of remains from these stories and the, the feeling of sort of injustice has to do with that. That it feels like it's people who don't have a voice that maybe can be in yes, that situation. Um, it, it just occurred to me that dignity was not the only word that we hadn't heard before tonight. Black is the other one, <laughs> which is what they both shared and which is why Henrietta Lacks had to go to Johns Hopkins mm -hmm. Hospital because that was the only hospital that would admit somebody who, in 1951, was both black and poor. That is, in fact, part of the connection between those, yes. those two. And I just thought that we should, we should speak to that. Um, and um, I guess going forward, I mean, there really have been changes. And it was going forward to keep that in our consciousness. And the la my last point would be, um, and, and Professor Banks spoke about the, the legal aspects of, uh, of, of this whole thing. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if. It, even if legally, even if on legal grounds, the family is not entitled, um, entitled to, to any form of compensation, that um, is this not more a moral, moral ethical issue? And that, um, that once, we, once we put it in, in legal terms, then you know, doors close. But if we, if we talk about it moral ethically, doors sort of open. And um, although, the, the, family, the family may feel sort of uncomfortable in feeling that they're even, you know, owed any kind of compensation because that sort of puts a negative connotation to it. And your mom was certainly beyond that. Um, that that is the way we let people know that they have done something wonderful. And even though she didn't know she did something wonderful, she did. And she's got children and grandchildren. And I, I just wanted to say to you that I, I do feel strongly, not that necessarily things should be pursued legally, 
but that moral ethically, just discussions like this hopefully will help things to be put right. And that's in terms of fortune as well. My question piggybacks right off okay. of that, actually. Okay, I, I was just going to say that was my point in, in saying that what occurred is a policy decision. It doesn't mean that that's what it has to be. If anything, I mean, I totally agree with the last speaker. I think that, that we need to rethink this decision. So this question piggybacks directly off of what we're talking about right now. Um, and I think presently we pat ourselves on the back a little bit. This notion of informed consent has come a long way from the 1700s or from the mid-1900s. And we say, well, if Henrietta were alive today, she would have had to give informed consent in order to have let those cells go. And leading from that point, we create this fiction that me as a patient, I'm donating what we're calling waste, but in reality is something that could potentially be very valuable and make a lot of people a lot of money. So there are some scholars who have suggested that maybe the way that we do it right now of saying no selling of any body, any, you know, no selling of body parts, um, maybe we should rethink that and say, yes, there is a market for my body parts, my cells, my tissues. And if I choose to sell it to you, and we're able to regulate a market that allows this to happen fairly, that maybe that's where we should be going next. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> so, so let's bring this into this century. So in, in this century came human stem cells, or came our realization of human stem cells. They've been there. And and the study of these cells. And here are cells that now we can make from our skin cells or our blood cells, waste materials. But they'll have, if they're made from my skin cells, a lot of characteristics of me. If they're made from your skin cells, they'll have a lot of characteristics of David. And, and so whose are these? Who owns these? Well, lots of smart people. and. Lots of people who, uh, who gave opinions on this, who, who knows if they smart, they're smart, they gave opinions. They said that, at least in this country, that these shouldn't be made from tissues that were sold. And the reasons they gave were that they were afraid of a different kind of oppression, an economic oppression, that oppression, that would uh, come with that. And the selling of body parts, say kidneys, and everything is commonly done in other countries on an open market, um, on a, at least a gray market here. Um, but it's, uh, it's not a fully approved, and, and the worry is that, is that, frankly, only poor people would, uh, would give organs, and they would give both their kidneys or something um, disgusting like that. The saying is that black people do not get organs, we give organs. Um, I, I think there is a huge danger in that, but I, um, I don't know that we would go down that route. But I think there, there, there should be some ground in which um, you do not make a living. Um, you do not make a career. You do not make a, 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 you know, your billions. 
based on the use of other people's tissue. I agree, and I believe still that right now we do sell our body parts. I could sell my eggs. Nobody is going to say, I'm buying your eggs. They're going to say, I'm paying you for your trouble. But at the end of the day, we know that that's not true. So I guess I wonder whether there's any value in pulling back that sheet, looking under the hood and saying, you know, at least if you're going to be giving it, you should be compensated well, fairly for what it. what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, by pulling back the sheet and looking under the hood, is to open up the course. marketplace, allow it to be regulated in some way or the other, and let each and every American be able to sell whatever part of his or her body that they feel like selling when we feel like selling it. With consent. Is, it's an idea. No, I'm just... I'm just, <laughs> I'm just making sure that's what you're saying. Yes. Yes. Because my little finger has never been of much use to me. <laughs> the question is whether anyone wants to buy it, indeed. I promise not to be endlessly loquacious in the issues I'm going to raise. Uh, but I would like to say, uh, it seems to me that it was alluded to, but not specifically stated, that there's a uniqueness about Henrietta's cells uh, yes. that has not been brought out specifically. And that is, is that they have regenerative uh, characteristics. And in that state, they are still alive because they have been fed, and I'd like to know what to feed them, uh, and, and, and they still exist. So in essence, she, a part of her, is still alive. Now, I'd like to know the issue there, the, whatever legal issue there might be to that. And then the other thing I'd like to know, how are they keeping them alive? What are they feeding them? How are they doing it? So, those are my David, issues. David said they want to know that themselves. <laughs> she was just a unique person, that's all. So, so in the uh, book, Rebecca Sloot um, talks about the family's understanding, Deborah's understanding, and at one point, Deborah thought her mother was alive in these cells, meaning that she would be able to look under the microscope, and when she came and looked under the microscope at the cells, she realized she couldn't talk to them that these cells were never going to talk. These cells can only be cervical cancer cells. They can't form a whole individual. They weren't even a brain cell. They couldn't form a brain or wherever the soul resides. They, they couldn't do that either. So they are alive, yes. They grow. They double. They need nutrients. Um, they're also not exactly like the rest of Henrietta. They probably had about 75 to 150 mutations that made them behave enormously differently and in the case of uh, HeLa cells grow very, very rapidly and, and uh, not die. There are other cells like that which have the same or very similar mutations we know now. We didn't know in, in uh, mid-19th century when these were made. But important that although they have 
some of Henrietta's DNA, they have a lot of DNA mutations that make them different, and they don't have the rest of Henrietta, either what she was born with or what she experienced after she was born. If you take identical twins and separate them at birth, they often turn out very, very different, as we know. Do you, one of the arguments, actually, um, I think that that's one of the arguments for not compensating the family at this point, that those cells that are being utilized now are very, very different from the original cells that were collected. Is that? They're probably uh, different still than the original cells, but the cells that were different, the cancer was very different from Henrietta. And we know now that genetically they're different in, in at least scores, perhaps hundreds of ways, from Henrietta's other cells. David Lex, do uh, you have? Are uh, her cells the only human cells that have continued to live 60-some years after her death? Are there any other human beings who donated cells with that same characteristic? As far as I know, not that we can trace or that we can identify. She was the first. HeLa cells were the first. So by definition, they're the oldest, right? But there are many, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cell lines in my own freezer. Um, so there must be thousands and thousands and thousands across the world of cell lines. David Lex. But, but that, but that then seems to me raise, raises the, the question uh, that, that the physician raised about the, the morality. I mean, whether this is, whether this is unique um, whether exceptions should be made and carved, uh, you know, if not in law, in, in terms of, of research policy um, about something like this. I, my question now seems hokey by comparison. <laughs> Do you have any memories of your mother? Uh, the only memory I have of my mother is the burial. I was only four years old at the time when my mother died. And I used to ask the older generation back then. I remember in the country they had black suits on. It was raining, black umbrellas. That's the only memory I have of my mother. Only, I'm, it's a learning experience for me right now, too, because I'd be asking like, the older people down the country. And like I said, they remember just as good as they can be about what my mother was and how she did. When they used to come up from the country down Turner Station, she used to invite them over, to, and she used to treat everybody good. That's why I say, by herself, doing what they're doing now, I know she would be a giving person, because she was giving back then. So that's the only memory I have of my mother. My older brother remembered it, but he used to tell me, only thing he remembers is the beatings he used to get, <laughs> you know, when he used to go downtown. I take it she was a strict woman, too, so, you know, I can't say nothing about that. Yeah, spankings we remember forever. Well, back them days, they were a lot of them. <laughs> Hold that. Yes, um, sir. I'd like to oh, know who does profit from the cells, and should anyone be allowed to profit from them? Um, and I was also curious if anyone knows um, whether it know, there were any sort of informal consent policies that were different for white people back then in the hospital than for black people. Let me try to answer the first question. I, I started in the answer to someone else's question earlier. Um, so Johns Hop Dr. Guy didn't sell the cells. Johns Hopkins didn't sell the cells. They went to these repositories. But then people learned things from the cells, and the cells contributed 
to many, many discoveries, inventions, vaccines, medicines, but didn't, uh, weren't the unique principle of these inventions. You know, so perhaps 100 different cell lines contributed, or perhaps other information contributed. So many, many medicines involved study of Henrietta Lacks' cells, but it wasn't the defining principle. Of those. Well, they they sell them uh, kind of it was the under the hood thing. They sell them for the costs of maintaining them. Okay, they don't sell them. These these are non profit uh, corporations that that sell them. They give people jobs, but they're not uh, they're not the evil pharmaceutical companies that sell them. But but the problem is that the cells have been commodified, and they they do end up. Uh, providing a profit to someone in in the long run, and even the places that 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 house these that um, as not profits have to generate enough money uh, to pay people's salaries and to do a lot of other. I mean, so 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 it it's this is a hole in the law. Is that hole because one keeps getting this sense from the questions and bring up the, the B word again. The, the race question, and that is, is the sense of injustice further amplified because it would be, it seems unfair to use anybody's bones or cells and ultimately to make money without their permission. But then it happens to people who were held in involuntary servitude, who were then discriminated against, segregated and oppressed, does that add another several hundred layers of unfairness to it. Well, I mean, well, it's, it's, it's worse than that. I actually, instead of reading the book, I was reading um, uh, Harriet Washington's Medical Apartheid. Uh, and, and, and so what makes people so angry is that, I mean, and I've, you know, since we're going to go there, the, the implication of race and class and, and, and how black people from the beginning have not really had control of their bodies and 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 how I mean even to the 90s with the experimentation uh, on young children and the genetics and violence studies you're you're talking about this long consistent history even with the the review boards uh, that that allow experimentation on certain kinds of people because it's more acceptable. They tend to be people who have the least amount of money. They tend to be people who have darker skin, uh, and they tend to be people who don't otherwise have access to health care. Uh, I refuse to answer that I was question. About to <laughs> But, but I'll now say, let me hand the microphone to Kurt. <laughs> but but let me say that there's a different kind of injustice that might occur, and this injustice I think is occurring today, where if everybody who was black said I'm not going to participate in research, I'm not going to donate my tissue, I'm not going to take part in a clinical trial, then the world would learn a lot about a lot of diseases, but might miss, but would miss sickle cell anemia and the cure of that. In addition, we're now learning that all of our genes 
are very, very different, and they modify the course of diseases that we think are one. Instead, there are several in different populations, in different families, in different people. The mantra of today is personalized or precision medicine that is geared to the individual. And if one group of people does not participate in clinical trials, that's a great loss for that group of people, their descendants, and ultimately for the whole world of understanding. So we, I believe we don't want that to happen. Yes, sir. As we um, honor Ms. Lax, um, I think it's fair that we stop saying she donated because she didn't donate. Also, the cells, no matter how modified they are, came from her first. And I think it's important that we not be afraid to address race in situations like this. It's very serious. And in a city where I grew up here, I grew up in McCullough Homes. I went to Booker T. I went to Mervo. And in a city here, and Morgan, <laughs> in a city where the disparity is so vast, black students would benefit from knowing who Ms. Lax was. I learned. I learned who Ms. Lax was. I moved back to Baltimore three months ago. I learned who Ms. Lax was two months ago. And I am honored, Mr. Lax, to be from the same city that you are from and that your mother is from. I am honored to hear this. But I think that it's important that we encourage you to continue to fight and not to just settle for saying, you know, well, your mother's a giver. Your mother's a giver, but I'll tell you this. My grandmother, my mother has a lock of my grandmother's hair that she got when she died because that's what many black people do in our culture. We keep something, but it's still my grandmother. While it's not regenerating and it's still not alive, I cannot, we cannot separate that from our grandmother. And that's how our culture is. It's important that we stand up and say, that we have to stand behind this person, this man, and the Lax family to make sure that justice is served. I appreciate you. I encourage you to fight. I encourage us to support the Lax family in their fight. I do. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Yes, ma'am. First of all, I think that Mrs. Lax belongs in the Maryland Women's Hall of Fame. Yeah. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, we can debate this issue forever. But morally, ethically, and every other word, the descendants of Mrs. Lax deserve free medical care. <laughs> I left out one word, lifetime for <laughs> medical care. I like that. <laughs> Your turn. Uh, we've talked a lot about the scientists benefiting, making money, uh, you know, taking, and yet it seems to me that the scientists have 
manipulated, have worked, have, have used these cells to do so much good. We also haven't addressed the fact that, is, that the artists have also used her story. And I was glad to hear from Mr. Lax that the author of the book is benefiting the family because she benefited from the story. Would the same thing happen if Mr. Fortune's descendants were found? Would they benefit from the publication of the book of poems? Would they benefit from the, the, the play, et cetera? I think, uh, and I'm coming from the artist's viewpoint, we also, we also use these stories to, our, to, our, to, create, to create something ourselves. And I think the scientists are like the artists in that they've created these wonderful things from, from your mother. And I think it's so wonderful that you feel so, so good about that, about those creations. Thank you. I think, Thank you very much. I think Mr. Fortune's descendants would probably number in the tens of thousands by this point. <laughs> Given that we're talking about from the 18th century to now. But it's a very good thought. Um, good evening. My name is Jada Thomas, and I attend the Baltimore Leadership School for Young Women. It's a big piggyback on what the man was saying. And I'm in the seventh grade, and in science, we were actually reading The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And I found it very interesting because our unit was cells. And I just want to say that we are, some kids are learning about cells and about Henrietta Lacks in Baltimore City Public School System. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we're just about out of time, and the future has just spoken. So, that I think, on that note, sir, we are about to end. Please make your comment as brief as possible. Thanks. I have a copy of the book in my hand, and I'm sure tomorrow a lot of people are going to be buying this book. Would anybody here, or a group of people, would be thinking about working together with that gentleman to write a book of her mother. Working that, with him to write a book about his mother? Yeah, exactly, F to work with him. Well, well uh, we have a group of people that's working together now to write a story about the Lax family. A lot of people want to hear how, about the Lax family from Clover, Virginia, to Turner Station, to in town. So we're in the process of doing it now. I, I hope we don't take as long as Rebecca did, 10 years. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm hoping it gets out there real nice. Thank you, young man. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Ladies and gentlemen, Kurt Seven. Tanya Lavelle Banks. Issei Barnwell. <laughs> David Sonny Lax. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Good night.
and, and everybody got to thank Mr. Cujo here. He was a good commentator. 